the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you this week from London where I've retreated for some final low altitude, low temperature, low pound against the Euro Giro d'Italia preparation where I've recovered from the dire cold which affected my performance in our Arrivé podcast after Liège. Thanks for all the thousands of get well soon messages. Didn't get a single one. (laughs) My name is Daniel Freeber and I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll talk red and yellow cars exclusively in reference to cycling not that other sport we have been known to mention we'll turn armchair quarterback and wednesday morning body language experts and psychoanalyze patrick lefebvre's handshake with junior alaphilippe at the end of liege baston liege and we'll hopefully zero in on the correct pronunciation of whatever bone Tadej Pogacar broke in his wrist after our guest today handed him a rather sinister looking knitted voodoo doll on the start line at Liège. Um, let's meet that particular guest now so he can explain exactly what was going on. He is a Liège winner himself, a two-time monument winner, also a former quick-step rider. Alas, it's not Remco, Avonapool. Actually, no, alas. As far as we know, Remco hasn't penned an acclaimed autobiography. We doubt he's ever studied L'Etranger by Albert Camus, the most random thing I could find in the aforementioned autobiography. And he's never co-hosted this podcast. All things to which this man can lay claim. He is the rider formerly known as Crosswinds, Disco Dan, 2013 Liège winner, Dan Martin. And the man who presented Tadej Pogacar with that, what was it, a knitted panda on the start line on Sunday, which didn't bring your old mate much lockdown. We know the story about you and pandas. You were chased by a panda, of course, when you won Liège. But what? tell us about this doll you presented Pogacar with. Well, I didn't present it to him. That that photo was taken, and I will post it on social media. I haven't done it yet. That was supposed to bring him some luck. And uh, I just thought 10 years (laughs) since the panda... He's, ten, now got, he's now put a, rest, a 10-year restraining order exactly, on Exactly, yeah. So t- 10 years since the Panda, and I thought the Panda should make a reappearance at Liège and choose its winner. And unfortunately, it got it wrong. So perhaps it was the 2014 version of the Panda that maybe fall off on the last corner that, uh, that, that it was that one right there. But yeah, it was... Um, anyway, nice to be here. That was a 45-second intro. It was, it was long. Uh, Dan, just very quickly, um, L'Etranger by Albert Camus, you studied at A-level, is that right? Uh, yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, uh, and La Guard de Mon Père, which I managed to somehow pass an exam on without actually reading. And very <laughs> apt for you, because that is set in Aubagne, near Marseille, and you lived very close to there, didn't you, when you were at VC... Um, what was it? Vici Pomme la Vici de la Pomme? Vici de la Pomme, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was quite it's funny how Albert, uh, I think Albert Camus was from Oban, even, and La Guadalupe was set there. So it is really weird how I ended up living there. Indeed. Our other guest, not really a guest, co presenter, um, I mean, he's not going to get treated to a long and elaborate intro today because he was treated to well, a visit by me to North London to meet him yesterday. Uh, Lionel Burney, how are you? I'm very well, Daniel. Um, Yeah, what a treat. What a treat that was, eh? Uh, Actually meeting up in 3D yesterday in London for our kind of pre-Giro planning and uh, editorial meeting, wasn't it? It's all, it was all, looking fine form, Lionel. Yeah. It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. You you ran to meet me, didn't you? Uh, over your cold in under twenty four hours. I was quite impressed by that because you were rough on Sunday. 
despite no one wishing you get well soon. I, I mean, I thought it. I didn't, maybe didn't say it, but I did think it, I promise. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Well, a very big thank you to Super Sapiens, who've been our title sponsors for the past two years. They started in May 2021, supporting the Cycling Podcast. But this is the last regular episode as title sponsors. And Daniel, I'm sure you want to join me in saying a big thank you to everyone at Super Sapiens. Indeed. But especially two of the company's founders, Phil Sutherland and Fitz Alan Crow, for their support. Uh, Phil, actually ran the London Marathon on Sunday, finished in a very respectable 3.17. What do you think of that, Daniel? That's pretty good. That's a very good performance, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, Sifan Hassan, the women's winner, uh, was wearing a Super Sapiens um, uh, a patch on her arm. It just made me uh, sort of quite interested that in the marathon, ru- um, runners can uh, wear the Super Sapiens patch, but of course, it is still not permitted in uh, UCI racing. But uh, that may change in the future. Anyway, we've been very proud to be sponsored by such an innovative company, and we hope that we've helped to demystify their technology and explain it to a wider audience over the past couple of years. Certainly, speaking personally, I'm very grateful to them because when I wore the Super Sapiens system for the first time in the summer of 2020, it raised some amber flags for me. I mean, to be honest, amber flags that I uh, probably recognised but ignored in the sense that I was uh, a bit too heavy and I needed to lose some weight. But seeing some data on my phone and seeing how my glucose spiked after certain types of food was really interesting and instructive, as was the way that I could actually bring those spikes under control by just subtly changing the types of food that I ate and the time that I ate them. I mean, Daniel, you'll testify that hangry liner was never a great travel companion but i seem to have eradicated those um extreme spikes and dips in my energy levels and uh yeah and i've lost uh mainly, mainly resolved that by eradicating travel <laughs> not not the case anymore not the case anymore you have been on the road i the did last have i did have a bit of a break from travel but uh yeah i mean it was the start of a weight loss journey in conjunction actually with one of our other regular advertisers noom um which you know in unsophisticated length language is a weight loss app but it was super sapiens that really kicked off that journey and um, made me a lot more aware of the impact that certain types of food were having on uh, my blood glucose and well i am today still 14 kilos lighter than i was in september 2021 so a big thank you from me to super sapiens for that thank you to super sapiens from the cycling podcast they will remain friends of the podcast for life if you want to find out more about them go to supersapiens.com and keep listening to the super sapiens podcast lionel Dan, time for the news roundup. Quite a skimpy, sparing news roundup this week. Not that much racing, actually, in the last few days. Uh, the Tour of the Alps finished on Friday with victory for a rider who's very familiar to podcast listeners. That is the 2020 Giro d'Italia champion, Teo Gegenhardt. This was Teo's first win in the GC of a stage race since that Giro. 
and it came after he won both of the first two stages. His final margin of victory was 22 seconds over Hugh Carthy, which sounded or sounds closer than the race actually was, if you watched it. And Jack Haig finished third, 28 seconds down. There's a bit of a private joke, a running gag between Teo and Jack Haig about who's the world's number one redhead um, in preparation for for the enormously um, important Arsenal game on Friday night, Taylor and I had exchanged a few messages about this. He was very glad, not only that he'd won Tour of the Outs, but to have beaten Jack Haig. Also, it was a handy week for Leonard Kemner, Bora, he won a stage, uh, Gregor Mulberger of Movistar and Simon Carr of EF Education first. Uh, another... Good week for EF Education first. Georg Steinhauser was also pretty strong in that race, Tour of the Alps. On the stage race front, we've got the Tour de Romandie starting as we speak, as we're recording today. Um, Juan Ayuso is on the start list there. He, of course, you'll remember, was third as a teenager in the Vuelta a España at the end of last year, but he has not yet raced so far in 2023 because his Achilles tendon uh, issues. Other notable riders on the start list, the Yates brothers, obviously riding for different teams. Now Mark Cavendish is also there. I had a call from Mark Cavendish last night. He's in he's in good fettle, good mood ahead of the Giro d'Italia. Um, I think most people know that he was due to ride the Giro. That's still the plan. Riding a lot, racing a lot. Dan, um, Lionel and I, before we started recording, we were just talking about this tour of Romandie. It's really fallen out of favour as a Giro d'Italia preparation race. The only people who do it to prepare for the Giro now are sort of domestique, second tier riders or sprinters. It seems a bit uh, a bit much, to be honest. I think, especially when the Giro starts on a Friday, obviously the issue is starting on a Saturday. And Tour de Romandie, I think it also shows that how difficult racing is. There is no easy days racing there. And... Tour of Romandie used to be a lot, a bit more of a cruisy race that you could go and and kind of use it as a tune-up for the Giro d'Italia. Whereas now it's a it's a very challenging race in itself, and obviously with that you accumulate a lot of fatigue. And only having five days before you leave for the go before you start the Giro, rather, it's only you'd probably end up going straight from the finish in Geneva or wherever it finishes this year to to the start line in a or at least have time to go home, pack your bag, and then leave on the Tuesday morning to go to the Giro. So it doesn't, there isn't really space for it now in, as far as a, a prep race. And in recent years, at least, the weather has often been stinking at the Tour de Romandie, which well, it might, in some cases it might be good preparation for the Giro because we've had some Giri in the last few years where the weather hasn't been great either. But um, yeah, probably quite risky to start Romandie and do the Giro. Um, Chaps, we mentioned Juan Ayuso. Speaking of much ballyhooed Spanish prodigies at the weekend, the 43-year-old gravel racing wunderkind Alejandro Valverde, and it's his birthday today, 43 today. Um, I think it's also Brian Cocal's birthday. I think it's 31. Valverde made his debut in the discipline, gravel discipline that is, at the Indomable, the literally the untamable but tame it, Valverde did, thereby taking the lead and the rather fetching leader's jersey in the brand new UCI Gravel World Series. I think there were 17 races in that, chaps. Not sure how many he's going to ride. 
Valverde won by nearly five minutes, which sounds like a lot. But in the women's race, Caroline Schiff of Canyon CLLCTV won by nearly 15 minutes. Uh, Lionel, you are sitting in your home studio and behind you, you've got the Tour de France, an iteration, some kind of... Um, version replica of a Tour de France combined jersey from the 80s. It was slightly this gravel World Series jersey that I mentioned, which is quite attractive, is slightly reminiscent of that. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't seen it, but now you've told me it looks like my favourite cycling jersey of all time. I have to look it up and see uh, see what it looks like. The the jersey behind me is the combination classification jersey from 1989 and I think 1990 or maybe only 1989. I can't remember. Uh, I've made a kilometre zero about the the uh, the Italian pop artist who did the uh, rather wacky designs for the 1989 Tour de France leaders jerseys and well the combination classification jersey well it didn't last much longer after that did it I think they retired it in the early 90s when uh, Jean-Marie Leblanc wanted to simplify the classifications and and make uh, well, just make it easier for people to understand what on earth was going on. I mean, there were so many leaders' jerseys by the end of the eighties, weren't there? There was a lot of talk at the weekend about the colour of Remco Evenepoel's shorts. He was wearing white shorts at Liège, Baston Liège. Of course, Valverde wore brown shorts with a blue Movistar jersey in the Indomable, which was an unusual combination. I uh, don't know if you saw that, you chaps. It got me thinking, Dan, actually, when you were Irish champion, did you ever wear, did you ever rock the white shorts? I did, actually. Yeah. I thought I you had might white have. shorts with green panels on some some occasions. I think we had a number of different iterations because when you design a national champion's jersey, it isn't just a free-for-all from the team. The federation actually has to okay it, and there's obviously certain guidelines and I think we had about two or three incredible designs knocked back from Garmin, from the Garmin days, from the Stipstream team. You had a and, nice uh, one. I remember. We got one right. I remember Dan, you having a nice one. I remember way back, first time I ever interviewed you, the Volta Portugal in two thousand eight, I believe. I think you were Irish champion then. I seem to remember that being a yeah. nice jersey. Yeah, we did. Well, we played off the the original Garmin jersey from the two thousand eight Tour de France, which was. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't symmetrical, so it was kind of a nice design. It allowed us to get a little bit of freedom as far as putting a... a I think there was a free... I've got a, I have a photo of it somewhere. We'll have to post it. A bit of a heart back. 15-year anniversary. 15 years ago, that is. But we were actually talking about the whole leaders' jersey situation in the Tour de France and the big races over the weekend. And the uh, with the way cycling has now gone, the young rider jersey seems to be almost irrelevant because it just seems to be the leader's jersey flat at the moment so perhaps it's time now i think the most the more exceptional classification should be the over 30s almost be a, be a bigger battle oh, this is this is a way a way back in for valverde here isn't it some kind of gray jersey for the over 30s uh, maybe these brown shorts daniel hint that valverde is in some kind of tug of love battle between movistar and ag2r and he's going he is going to come back at the vuelta after all, well, you should, we have some kind of mammal jersey instead. So it's, it's, it's doing it's, instead of showing the young riders, it's inspired the. I mean, it depends how extreme we go. Grey jersey with brown shorts. Does that? I'm not a fashionista, but does that work? 
it's well, I don't know. It seems to be there seems to be a, a, a universal recognition that if you're riding any kind of gravel event, you have to be wearing brown, um, which I don't know. It seems a bit literal to me. Um, just talking about jerseys, Dan, you mentioning being at Liège and talking about jerseys at Liège. Liège is an ASO race, of course. Don't don't know whether I spoke about this after Paris Nice. I had a few conversations with people at Paris Nice where. The much darker hue of the green jersey got people talking. Um, at Parini, Skoda are promoting their electric vehicles and the sort of colour they're using, the signature colour, is a quite a dark green and that was the colour of the green jersey at Paris nice A lot of people didn't like it, but that is going to be the colour of the green jersey at the Tour de France, I believe. Um, chaps... Looking ahead now to the Giro d'Italia, we mentioned it a minute ago, we'll start to get some team news in the next few days and Trek Segafredo have already, well they've already got a selection headache as Giulio Ciccone tested positive for COVID-19 and his participation in La Corsa Rosa is now uncertain. Ciccone finished 13th in Liège at the weekend and of course... Were he to start in the Giro, which was very much the plan, he would be the enfant du pays. He'd be the local hero because the Giro is starting in his home region, Abruzzo. Not many riders from Abruzzo. Um, another rider who is from Abruzzo, Dario Cataldo, he's also rides for Trek Segafredo, but of course he's recovering from terrible accident he suffered um, a few weeks ago. So... We're not sure whether Chicone will start. Also on Trek Segafredo, I noticed just a couple of hours ago, actually, before we started recording, um, our good friend, Ciro Scognamiglio, who you'll be hearing a lot from at the Giro d'Italia, um, he tweeted that Antonio Tiberi, who of course has been suspended by uh, Trek Segafredo, as a result of that very unsavoury incident involving the well, him shooting a cat. Um, he was suspended for 20 days on the 28th of February, but has not come back to racing, um, hasn't made any appearances since then. And Chiro has just tweeted that a transfer, an imminent transfer, is likely that Tiberi might be going from uh, Trek Segafredo to Bahrain victorious. But that is unconfirmed. I think, chaps, that concludes the news roundup. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Well, the Giro d'Italia is approaching, Daniel, and that always reminds me of a very important anniversary for the Cycling Podcast because this year marks seven years since Science in Sport began sponsoring us and we are incredibly grateful to that long-running relationship. And, well, it's a big week for Science in Sport because... It's the Tour de Lunsar, which is a four-day stage race in and around Freetown in Sierra Leone. Uh, there's actually a women's race and a junior race on Wednesday, April the 26th, before the four-day stage race begins. That runs from Thursday to Sunday. And the Tour de Lunsar is sponsored by Science in Sport. And that's an initiative instigated by Stephen Moon, the CEO of Science in Sport. And it's thanks to Stephen that Science in Sport has been a long-running partner for the Cycling Podcast too. Now, we're going to be getting some material recorded on the ground in Sierra Leone for a forthcoming episode of Service Course. A really fascinating race, really interesting initiative, and we are keen to find out more about Science in Sport's involvement supporting the Tour de Lensar. So listen out for that over the coming weeks. Of course, Science in Sport can fuel your ride, uh, whether you're racing, training, got everything 
everything you need for before, during and after your effort. So go to scienceinsport.com to check out the full range of energy products. Well, I know you mentioned the anniversary of our union with Science in Sport. Talking of anniversaries, 10 years since Dan Martin was chased by a panda and won, not in Liège, in Anse, but it was Liège, Bastogne-Liège. Dan, you were there at the weekend. You were making a debut of sorts. We talked about Alejandro Valverde making his debut at the UCI World Gravel Series. You were making your debut in the commentary box. I mean, I know you've done it for ITV. You had little stints last year. Um, working for us, I can I can talk about us because I work for them as well. But you did the whole race at the weekend. But um, what was it like being in Liège first of all, ten years on? It was uh, it was a strange feeling because I think it made me realise that it was ten years ago, which seemed well, it it seems like a long time, but it seems to have flown by. And uh, yeah, it was it was touching about being able to catch up with all the all the peloton. A lot of guys I hadn't seen for quite a while, and between team staff riders and even the organization that uh it was um they got me up on stage that was a bit of a surprise to be honest to talk uh talk about it being 10 years since i won and who was who was my favorite for the day and then yeah great experience spending the day with Anthony McCrossan and, and Hannah Walker in the uh in the commentary booth and i went into it completely underprepared because uh obviously not knowing what I needed to prepare was a little bit, it was, but now I know. And a four hour stint in the commentary booth was definitely a new, a new experience, but the time flew by. I mean, yeah, just all I had to do was watch bike racing, which yeah, it was, uh, and using my knowledge of the course and being able to discuss with the riders beforehand, what was going to happen and how they were feeling was, uh, was also quite useful to, to hopefully give a bit of insight to, uh, to the international viewers. I don't think it was accessible in the UK, but uh, or in Europe even. But hopefully, uh, hopefully, a few of the listeners managed to manage to tune into my my debut. When when you're on the podium, Dan, was the panda just behind your shoulder there, just out of sight? They didn't bring the panda back for the tenth anniversary. The the evil voodoo panda was stuffed in my pocket, actually. But the uh... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I was about to ask you, when you weren't putting a curse on Tadej Pogacar, when you were doing your pit walk in the morning, because um, you were circulating, as you just mentioned, Dan, um, on the start grid, if we can call it that, um, what what did you observe, Dan? What was the mood like? Did you pick up anything that, with hindsight, after Remco romped Liège, you later came to think, well, that was probably quite significant? I actually, I actually picked up, the opposite. I thought I found Rimko, although he was very, very confident, he seemed he was he, I think the remarkable thing about all of these young riders is how they deal with the pressure and the public being so they're the center of attention. And they have especially Remco racing in Belgium, he appeared to sign on to do the to the the media zone five, maybe even ten minutes before the rest of his team specifically to do extra he, he loves it though doesn't he Dan? exactly do you not think he really relishes it he yeah. seems to and that's that's a i find that amazing as a young rider because we see so many young riders who crumple under the pressure after they've had a breakthrough season whereas he seems to embrace this pressure embrace his new newfound celebrity status especially in belgium but then he also showed up to the start line probably seven eight minutes to go and stood front row soaking up the atmosphere and I personally always found that in a race like the age, you you spend as much time hidden away as possible because the race is long enough and the tranquility of the team bus is actually a safe haven. It's you're not using energy, whereas 
he was up and about. He'd left the team bus effectively 30 minutes before the start between doing 15 minutes of interviews. Before, and then he, he rushed back to his team bus for five minutes and then suddenly he appeared again. Whereas Teddy Pogaccia, he, he showed up literally. He rolled to the start as the gun was going. He was so relaxed, so happy, so calm. It was uh, it was quite interesting the difference in the approach to the start to the to the race and yeah I think it, honestly it was just bad sheer bad luck by the sounds of it. I talked to a few of the guys after the race and it was just a freak accident effectively. So Mikel Honore, he's he basically hit a hole and his tire exploded directly in front of Tade Pogacar. And then, yeah, Tade obviously had just nowhere to go. And uh, it was, I think Tade was the only other rider to crash. So it was literally, and they were right in the top 10, 15 riders of the peloton. But apparently, so it's it was really a completely, yeah, I mean, obviously in my book, I talk a lot about fate and, and uh, it seems it was that that day, you know, and of course, maybe it was the voodoo panda that struck, uh, that struck him down again, like I did it me in 2014. Dan, we well, I talked in our podcast, in our Arrive podcast, so it was directly after the race on Sunday about how I'd I sort of been conditioned, influenced by. I'd read a lot of stuff in the days leading up to the race about how well Remco had been training in Tenerife, and I, and I found my sort of inner kind of weather vein shifting slightly from Pogacar towards. Uh, Remco, I, I started to get the feeling that he was going to win, and I don't, I don't know if you felt strongly either way. I also mentioned on Sunday that Lekip had done a bit of a straw poll of pundits, experts, and it was overwhelmingly in favour of Pogacar, fourteen to one, um, in favour of Pogacar. What was your feeling around the team paddock? It was quite equal, but. The atmosphere at the Quickstep bus was actually remarkably calm. When you read everything in the press about the amount of pressure that Patrick Lefebvre is putting on his team, I expected to go there and see a, a nervous team, an anxious team, but they were very, very relaxed. It was just laughing, joking. They were confident, and it seemed like they they had confidence. I think it seems that Remco actually instills that confidence across the whole team. They say like even just talking to random members of staff, like I talked to the bus driver once the race started, I went and had a coffee with him and he said, it's just amazing how he controls the team. He he basically takes the team meeting and will instruct the riders what each of their jobs is. So it, it's not the director doing that. This was, it's, it's Remco doing that yeah. and telling them, okay, you're going to ride that power on that climb and you're going to ride that power on that climb and then you're going to do this. And he, he really, his presence at the race among that team just asserts this level of tranquility that like allows them to race how they did on Sunday. I think the whole team just stepped up a level and rode out of their skins. Whereas the UAE bus is very much a lesser, like a tranquil, tranquil, low kind of very relaxed atmosphere. Like Taddy, when I went to the bus, Taddy pokes his head out the window and starts shouting at me like that, but a little bit less organized, but less, it was, it was an interesting dynamic. Obviously I think the attitude at UAE was a bit like, well, we've won a lot of races already, so we don't really, Today, we win, we win. If we don't, we don't. Whereas it was a controlled confidence at the quick step bus. So, but I think very much, as you say, very much the atmosphere of the race, everybody was expecting Tade to win. But except for Remco, Remco knew he was going to win. He or he knew he was going to put on a big performance that day. 
It's funny you say that about Remco's leadership, Dan. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when, oh, in relation to the documentary that Quickstep have just put out um, about last year, um, which what, it shows a lot of what went on behind the scenes at the Vuelta España last year. And I said the same thing. It was mainly Remco taking the team meetings. And, you know, it, it's interesting. This is a guy who until not that long ago, probably just before the Vuelta last year, had this reputation as being slightly immature, brattish, some people might have even said. Yet when you watched him in that setting, you get the completely opposite impression. And actually my interactions with him at the Vuelta last year in the mix zone, he was incredibly comfortable in his own skin, incredibly confident, and he's he's charismatic as well. And, um, and as we said, he also relishes the limelight relishes the pressure i think he relishes the pressure because he knows how good he is he's so confident he knows he doesn't really have anything to be afraid of when he goes into um races like liege at the weekend that that's my sense anyway yeah that's what it feels like but it also a lot can, as like today crashing shows a lot can happen in a bike race and uh it's um but they seem to be able to control the controllables very very well and he's yeah, he just he there was no doubt how he was behaving in the paddock. Yeah, as you say, he's he's a rider in control and he's uh, mature. And how he spoke in the after race interview as well on the podium, very very mature. Especially you forget how young he is and it, inexperienced as well. We have we can't we can't forget that how long has he been professional now? Three years? It's four years even. It's uh, and this is all very new to him really but it doesn't seem like it. You catch up with your old boss at the weekend, Dan, uh, Patrick Lefebvre. I said we were going to psychoanalyse his interactions with, or his handshake with Julien Alaphilippe when Alaphilippe came over the line and they sort of celebrated. Alaphilippe was hugged by Remco's mum and then it was a, a quite a, I wouldn't say frosty, but a, a perfunctory handshake between... Patrick Lefebvre and Junior Alaphilippe, I would say. Anything, any, can you dish any dirt on that for us, Dan, please? Patrick was the only guy that I uh, I didn't cross paths with. And it's probably a good thing, as I was tempted to ask him what where he was going for lunch on Sunday. But, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, no, the rest of the team were saying, yeah, that obviously there's a bit of stress floating around there. And I think, yeah, Patrick obviously has his agenda set in his mind and... Potentially, I guess, Julian doesn't fit in that plan now, even though he still has a contract for another year. So uh, whether he's playing games or not, well, only Patrick knows, but uh, we'll have to, we'll remains to be seen how things move forward in that relationship and, and how Julian copes with that. I spoke to Julian and he was very, very relaxed, very, just very happy to be there. I think it was nice for him not to have the pressure of the team with Remco there, but he also, I think he did a great performance considering his, his build-up to the race. But yeah, whether whether he wants to go and be the number one in a different team, I think that that's essentially what Patrick's saying to him. It's it's almost like I think Patrick's almost giving him the green light to to lead the team now to go and pursue his own endeavours. And perhaps that was also a sign on Sunday. It was that that was Patrick saying, "Look, either you leave or you ride for Remco," kind of thing. You know, I don't, uh, who knows? But I didn't see this handshake. I didn't see. Uh, I saw Julian cross the line, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a soap opera waiting to roll out. 
I mean, Lefebvre is the only team boss who would expect both of his highest paid riders to win the same race and be disappointed <laughs> that they couldn't both win. You know, it's a, you know, he's a, he, he does strike us as a, as a demanding character and uh, he's, he has kind of put the squeeze on Alaphilippe over the past few weeks, hasn't he? For sure. And it's, it's I think it's, a, it's kind of been accumulating over the last few years. It's, it's a... Uh, Julian hasn't had the best 18 months now. and But I do think that ah, there is a certain way to put pressure on a rider and how Patrick's doing it is not correct. You need to give, when a rider's having a bad time, especially somebody like Julian, who is used to winning, he's used to getting results. You need to give him a shoulder to cry, some support, just to be able to say, look, we know you're still a good rider. Just relax and the results will come. Not you need to go and win. Like that's that's really because there's one person that understands he needs to go and win more than anybody, and that's Julian Alaphilippe. So um, yeah, I mean, obviously he's going to step back now, I think, and rebuild towards the Tour de France. We don't really know what the makeup of his team will be at the Tour de France. Probably around a sprinter, probably Fabio Jakobsen, I guess. So it will be interesting to see if Julian makes that team, even because at the moment that that kind of looks unlikely, and it would be a big, big step, a big statement if he didn't make the Tour de France team for uh, for that pseudo quick step team. I mean, there is there are some rumours going around that he may not even be at quick step this summer, that Lefebvre might have been trying to unhinge himself from Alaphilippe even before the Tour de France. I don't think there's too much substance to that. But, um, you know, when it comes to the contract and how much it's worth, but also mainly the duration of it. I mean, it was Lefebvre who he put his... Um, signature to a three-year contract in two, um, when was it 2021 as well you know he's been around long enough to know the perils of signing long contracts with let's face it riders who are probably I'm not going to say over the hill but they're on the, the plateau the age plateau and so I don't think I've got too much sympathy with um with that but just on the tactics of the and the way that quick step rode down i mean they were obviously under a lot of pressure we talked on sunday about how there was a point where they looked as though they might become exposed i pinpointed when molima attacked i think it was 46 or 7 kilometers ago so shortly before lara dute and they only had two guys left Vaveka and van wilder and it looked like that was the point at which the vessel could start taking on water at that point and 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 possibly that could have capsized them but they regrouped and Faveca came back to the front I don't know whether you know other teams might have tried something uh, to compound whatever damage was being done had been done at that point and then whether that was a point where they might have been vulnerable but uh, Remco was so strong I mean is, is there anything anyone could have done that was definitely a turning point I mean the other teams allowed Viveka to come back into the race. He was a, the, the, I think they actually lost thirty seconds to the breakaway at that during that point because the peloton slowed down so much, and that's what allowed Viveka to come back and be able to pace them into the bottom of Lara Dute and keep Remco in good position. So yeah, Remco was clearly the strongest guy in the race, but I think what was slightly disappointing was the fact that at that very when Molimer attacked, Ineos still had five riders left, including Tom Pitcock, but. They could have tried to break up the race somehow because of that the race stopped. It slowed down. It was a flat section. It would be very difficult to control something there. And at least some riders, it's easier said than done, of course. But if there was a few riders who knew they were almost knew they were going to get dropped in Larry Dudes anyway, 
get a head start, even if you start narrative with 20 seconds, it gives you the opportunity to maybe be with Remco at the top of the climb. Because the whole race knew almost the day before when Remco went and did a test run of Larry Deuce at full speed, getting the Strava record. Everybody knew who's going to attack on Larry Deuce. So it was a case of, it was almost like the race has got a psychological block now as far as racing for second place, which is totally understandable. But at the same time, with those teams that had a, a few riders there, could have tried something before before the descent down to down to it's Rebuchon, isn't it? The bottom of Lower Dude. Well, chaps, before we move on, just a few bits of housekeeping here because the Giro d'Italia is fast approaching, and uh, we will be back with daily coverage once again. Seven trailer drop today, Lionel. That's right. Yes, our now traditional video trailer of uh, last year's highlights from behind the mic, uh, expertly put together once again by you, Daniel, really whetting the appetite for the Giro d'Italia. Uh, you'll be there from the start. A daily episodes of the cycling podcast, of course, and uh, Kilometer Zero will be back. Three episodes of Kilometer Zero a week. Now, uh, that will most likely be available for friends of the podcast. So if you would like to sign up as a friend of the podcast, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and click on where it says sign up as a friend of the podcast. And uh, you can then browse through the now extensive archive of our special episodes as well. We've got lots of other things coming over the next few months as we build up through the Giro and then the Tour de France but yes it's likely that Kilometer Zero will be available to friends of the podcast subscribers throughout the Giro um, just probably a couple we'll probably throw a few crumbs the non a few episodes or a couple of episodes the non-friends the enemies of the podcast I'll probably get a couple <laughs> I mean if the, I'll be impressed have, have the enemies of the Lionel, podcast how do I become an enemy of the podcast <laughs> quite easily we don't have any enemies Daniel very easily um, <laughs> uh, quick mention for our clothing partners at MAP you may remember a few weeks ago we were talking about their pursuit of progression campaign they were asking people to uh, set their goals for 2023 and listener Jamie Roberts sent us a really entertaining email about his ride from the UK all the way to Barcelona because he was off to see the boss Bruce Springsteen his daughter had got tickets uh, Jamie first saw the boss Bruce Springsteen in Montpellier in 1985 and his daughter got him tickets for the opening night of the European tour which is in the Olympic Stadium in Barcelona which is only now a couple of days away and we saw on Twitter that Jamie has covered 941 kilometres of his ride he's got 361 to go as of yesterday he's been on the road 10 days he's got to get over the Pyrenees though and into into Spain and then down to Barcelona but these are the glory days he's gonna <laughs> He's going to make it for the opening song, I am sure. Uh, good luck, Jamie. Hope uh, you have a great time on, uh, I think it's Friday night there. Um, Ev everyone at some point has to see the boss in concert, don't they? Have you, Lionel? I have. I saw him at Wembley once. Yeah. Just once. I'd like to see him again. I saw him at Glastonbury once. Dan? Dan? No. I haven't seen him, no. no definitely a rite of passage. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely tremendous. I mean, he played songs that were unfamiliar to me for about an hour, and then launched into the launched into the favourites. But uh, anyway, uh, a couple of other things to mention: the eleven oh one cappuccino. Uh, sign up for that because that's where you'll find out all about our Giro coverage. Uh, if you haven't listened to Arrive from either the men's or women's races, uh, do do so. Liège Baston Liège. We covered, of course, on Sunday. Daniel and I took on the men's race and. And Lizzie Banks and Rose Manley talked about the demolition of uh, the women's race by Demi Vollering. There's also an episode of the Cycling Podcast Feminine coming very soon in the next few days with Lizzie, Rose and Orla. And uh, just very quickly before we get back to the uh, the main uh, meat of the podcast, Daniel, you asked the listeners to suggest improvements for flesh alone do you remember last week and we had lots of comments most people suggesting moving the finishing line either beyond the mur de hui or uh you know i just know that dan is grim i can't see dan currently but i just know that he's grimacing he will be dan grimacing. thinks that flesh alone is just fine absolutely uh i just don't think yeah it's like let's let's Maybe let's pave over some cobblestones as well to stop Paris Bay being what it is. You know, it's I think it, it's an interesting one because I think Fresh Alone has this character of a race that's yes, okay, it's different to every other race, but does every race ne- really need to be super exciting? I think what it does need to change is how cycling is portrayed because it's one of the most nervous, stressful races of the of the year, Fresh Alone, but it just doesn't come across on camera. That's that's the big issue. I think, yeah, absolutely right. I'm with you there, Dan. Uh, lots of people suggested moving the finish line beyond the Mur de Huy. A couple of people actually suggested perhaps finishing it halfway up one year, maybe after the Z bend. I don't know. But the the comment that really uh, resonated with me, and it's probably a comment I should have made in our episode, Daniel, is from Claire Morley. And she points out that uh, whereas it maybe doesn't come across on TV as a spectacle to actually be there on the roadside, uh, you know, it's pretty much one of the best days of the um, cycling calendar because not only do you get to see both the men's and women's races but they come past multiple times and it's a natural stadium isn't it and she said you know you get the commentary from the loudspeakers there's the big screen to watch the race on great food and drink very friendly crowd and a real atmosphere building over the course of the afternoon so absolutely i mean seeing any live sport is fantastic but i can definitely say from my experiences of going to flesh will own it never disappoints if you go and watch it in the flesh so even <laughs> in the flesh uh, so even if you um even if you think well it's not a great afternoon's tv uh, i can guarantee you'll have a great time if you did venture over to the arden and watch it hmm <laughs> well <laughs> wow well, chaps, we <laughs> finished the last part talking about Remco, uh, Avonapool. Of course, Remco has a very important rendezvous coming up in just over a week's time. He is starting the Giro d'Italia and he will be starting his favourite now. I've, I've had a look at the odds and he's pretty much the overwhelming favourite now, well ahead of Primoz Roglic. Liège-Baston-Liège was billed as a head-to-head battle between Remco, Clash of the Titans, between Remco and Pog. We didn't get that. So now, instead of Pog, we've got Rog. Dan, I talked about the sort of internal weather vane and mine having pointed more towards Remco before Liège. How are you How are you feeling about the Giro and the likelihood of 
Remco doing what he did at the Vuelta last year, albeit with the caveat that Rog was, he was coming back. It was a bit of a Rog remontada, wasn't it? Before he crashed in the final week in Seville and well, crashed out of the race. So it's the rematch. Uh, what, what, what are you thinking? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I want to comment anymore because every time I say anything, Remco seems to prove me, prove all of us wrong. I thought you'd become an he's, enemy uh, of the cycling podcast he just, he, he just for seems, a second. I thought you'd sign up to our, our enemies. He, he, um, he just seems to tear up the the, uh, the textbook every race he does. And like Liège last year, a very good example of, yeah, when was the last race? When was the last time the race was won from an attack on Larry Dukes? And he did the same again this year. So it's... um. Yeah, I, I think the one thing with the Giro that seems to decide the race often is the weather. And whether it's good or bad, obviously, it, if it's snowy and wet, that can mean that the mountains are taking out. And that puts more emphasis onto the TTs, for sure, which I think will be an advantage for Remco. But as well, I think the Giro is the one race that riders first realize when you've got serious allergy problems. And it's and Remco not having done the race before. If it's a hot Giro, you can have you can discover that suddenly you can't breathe in Italy in May as well. So the weather can change the Giro a lot as far as the, who races where well in the cold. We saw Remco last year; he suffered very badly on the snowy day in the uh, was it the Dolomites or the Italian Alps? I, um, when the or two years ago, it was two years ago actually when Remco did it, wasn't it? And he um, he lost. He was up there on GC and had a really bad day when it was cold and snowy so it's a very different Remco now obviously but it's um yeah I think we're just very fortunate we've got two two of the what so-called aliens of the peloton currently riding the Giro it is it does now allow us to see this face off I mean Dan you talk there about allergies if I can use a, a a metaphor we we specialize in terrible metaphors or analogies images in the cycling podcast and you know the year i talked a few weeks ago about it but just being a bit more complicated it's like a cake or a dish with more ingredients than the well to say and with more ingredients you're more likely to have some kind of food in or dietary intolerance and you know they are allergies themselves literal allergies roads aren't quite as good there's more road furniture than there is at the Vuelta um, I, I just think that it's a slightly more um, volatile mix or it's probably yeah it's, it, it'd be interesting to see the attrition rate at the Giro versus the Tour in the Vuelta because you seem to see a lot more of the top 10 fall apart in the last week of the Giro than you do in the Vuelta and the, and the Tour and I think it is as you say Allergies, bad weather, crashes, the technical roads, illness. It seems to be a lot more susceptible in May than it is in the other Grand Tours. And yeah, yeah, it's a good point. There's a lot more ingredients of being having a successful Giro than there is than there is the other Grand Tours. But yeah, I, I think we're also in danger. It's kind of like the Asia bit as well. Although it did come down to Remco winning, there was a, there is a lot of other contenders, and because of those. Because of the fact that so much can go wrong in the Giro, it's uh, yeah. I think we can't forget a lot of the other riders involved, especially the strong Ineos team, seemingly uh, seemingly building momentum. But with Remco as well, obviously, I think we always point out that his team is potentially the weak point. And in one day races, you don't really need to have the strongest team. Although he proved that the team was very strong on Sunday. Over the course of a Grand Tour, it becomes very important because if you're 
especially in a race like the Giro, when you've got big climbs early on in the stage, a lot can go wrong earlier on in the stage, mechanicals, even if you're not feeling great. Like obviously we saw Chavez lose the whole race a few years ago, I think, from the first climb of the day. So in a 200 kilometer stage. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that strength, strength across the Quixler team is where I think the Jumbo Visma team with Roglic seems to, seems to be their strongest point at the Dan, moment. Dan, just, I was just going to ask you before we move on to talk about Pogacar, um, just these last couple of weeks before the Giro in particular, there's been a bit of talk in Belgium over the last few hours and last couple of days, Jan Bakelens guy, you, uh, rode against um, for many years one of your peers he's now a pundit in Belgium and he he was sort of expressing some bafflement at, at Remco going back to altitude after Liège-Bastogne-Liège and then of course you've got Roglic who and Lionel and I talked about this at the weekend Jumbo-Visma they decided that they weren't going to send Vingegaard, they weren't going to send Roglic, they weren't going to send Van Aert to the Ardennes. But Roglic, you know, he was given a pass there so he, he's been at altitude the whole time in Tenerife. Um, Remco came out, came to Liège, and then he's going back to altitude. Now, I know you skipped Liège, I think, in 2021 when you were really focusing on Giro. But what's your feeling about how, how you negotiate these last two weeks? What's the best recipe? and is it, Or is it just, it depends on the individual? I think, yeah, definitely depends on the individual. And that was the big question mark about Remco coming directly from Tenerife to Liège. Normally, riders need a a while to adapt to sea level and be able to do those explosive efforts after coming down from altitude. Whereas he seems to have found a way of being able to cope with that. So also the effects of altitude, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but it's supposedly only lasts probably two to four weeks. So it makes sense that he'd be going back to altitude and coming down, back down. If If he can cope with racing directly off the back of coming down, it makes perfect sense that he'd go back up. And especially now with the status that he has in Belgium or, or wherever, I think, going to altitude and just being locked in a hotel, quiet, resting. It's definitely the best way for him to prepare for a grand tour because he can definitely switch off as long as he's not thinking too much about the race. But obviously that doesn't also doesn't seem to be a problem for the, uh, for our world champion. So it's, um, yeah, I, they, they've seemed to have figured out what works best for him. So I, uh, it, it does definitely make sense in my head what he's doing. Should we move on to Pog? Should we have some wrist chat? Um, we were, I didn't mean to be facetious talking about you putting a curse on Pog because, of course, well, it was, it was a big shame for the spectacle for us all who were looking forward to that Clash of the Titans that I mentioned when he did crash on Sunday. But it's also very unfortunate for him and his team that he has crashed and he's got this injury. Had uh, an operation immediately on Sunday on his wrist. I got the pronunciation of the bone that he'd broken wrong. I said it was a scaffold. It's scaphoid, you pronounce it? Um, thanks to Marcus Banks, who's a long-time listener, got in touch about that. He's an also he's an orthopedic surgeon, Marcus, isn't he? Um, hip specialist, I think. Anyway, there's been I I mentioned there all the talk about Remco, how he's preparing for the Giro. Obviously, a lot of speculation now about Pog and the Tour. Um, people computing how many days there are until the start of the Tour. I think 68 at last last count um there are i've seen pundits saying that they worry now for pog Laurent jalabert was an in, gave an interview to a french website said he thought that it would be difficult now there are others that say it's going to be no problem pogacar's 
posting all sorts on social media pictures looking very chipper looking as though he doesn't have a care in the world Dan you've got experience with with wrist injuries different wrist injuries a different wrist injury you had a crash in 2009 Volta Catalunya which you wrote in your book affected you for several years thereafter um, before I go to you then Dan I'll ask Lionel first Lionel have you had any thoughts about this over the last couple of days if you had to bet now which I think Pog will be fine I think it'll be fine yeah I mean he's going to be able to get back on the whatever training you know indoor training certainly very soon but I would imagine that after the block of racing he's done there's a little bit of downtime there's some some space for that before what what, what do we think he's going to do is he going to go to altitude before the tour figure he was so yeah that was the plan wasn't it because he hasn't done it yet yeah yeah so um i i mean you know we we we're dealing with a sport where um matt Heyman fractured his collarbone didn't he sort of six weeks five weeks before Paris bay and still won it i mean uh he will have you know he's already had his operation um they will be able to um rejig his preparation and training plan it's not like he's missing any racing i think probably he'll be absolutely fine but it does uh, insert a little bit of jeopardy into the pogachar vingegaard um, battle for the tour de france and raise a bit of a question mark about um, pogachar and and who knows i mean maybe your your weather vane daniel is probably pointing towards denmark at the moment pretty firmly <laughs> dan talk to us about that wrist injury yeah yeah my well I think first of all, yeah, my wrist injury was mainly because I, I didn't actually break anything. I just got a tendon, almost like a sprain tendonitis type thing. And I started riding straight away almost and just sitting, protecting the wrist, sitting slightly different on the bike meant that I created a weakness and an issue in my shoulder, which was really difficult to budge. And I still actually have issues now just from a, from an imbalance in my muscular strength across my back. And uh, it just shows that I think as far as his rehab is concerned, that's that's absolute priority because if you come back too quickly, you can end up creating further damage than just a broken bone down the line. But I actually talked to him yesterday and he was uh, yeah, in really good spirits. So he was actually supposed to go on holiday this week anyway and, and head away and take probably, I don't know exactly how much time, but sorry, a week, 10 days off the bike. And so, uh, yeah, that's obviously... It's it's the first time he's ever had anything in his career like this, though. So it'd be interesting to see how he comes about mentally from that. I mean, he seems in really good spirits, but I actually was joking with him saying that it's the uh, he's a real cyclist, a real pro cyclist now because he's actually fallen off. Because I don't think he's other than that little tip off at the on the descent of the uh, was it the Col de Sula or the before before Hotecam last year. I don't ever remember him actually crashing his bike. So it's uh, yeah, it, I think he'll be. I think it'd be just fine. Obviously, the one thing is now that if he has one bad day at the tour, everybody's going to point the finger at this crash, and that's a bit that's slightly unfortunate because it's as you say, it is creating jeopardy as far as his as far as his move towards the Tour de France now. But at the same time, I think he probably got to the tour last year a little bit. He was absolutely one hundred and ten percent conditioned, if that's possible. He was flying already in Slovenia. And maybe faded off towards the end of the race. We saw at Hotel having home problems, and the last time trial, he was he wasn't on the same level as Vingegaard. So this could actually mean he arrives at the race in better condition because he doesn't get overexcited and 
and peak too early. It's, it's kind of it's going to definitely slow down his preparation and mean that he's uh, not chasing his tail, but building into the race rather than arriving at the race in top top condition. And as the race gets, it's such a difficult course this year, and it's so hard to hold top condition over the whole three weeks that uh, that could when the decisive stages come, he's he'll probably end up using the race naturally now because he's had this setback he'll end up building through the race and getting stronger as the race I goes mean, on he's certainly a rider who in the past when he's been fresh has performed incredibly well and fresh in terms of not having raced i mean his first his record in his first races in of the season is pretty remarkable even going back to his near pro season he won the um algarve didn't he tour of the algarve that i think that was his first race his first stage race so yeah that that may well be the case tan and um, before we leave the liege chat um it would be remiss of us not to ask you about ben healy dan because um, when we've been talking about him over the last two or three weeks i've pointed out there's a slight slim similarity in your accents i must say there's a similarity in the one you represent the same country, represented the same country. Not dissimilar riders as well. Um, do you know Ben Healy, Dan? I yeah, I was, I was actually going to add as well. We haven't even mentioned Tom Pickock, who's obviously got an amazing second on uh, on Sunday. But uh, yeah, Ben. I mean, breakthrough week for him. He'll obviously build towards next year now, and obviously he's got a whole new level of respect across the peloton and. We definitely saw that on on Sunday when he was a March rider, and yeah, I first met Ben in 2019 when actually my my father was the uh, under 23 director for or junior director throughout the season. I think he was still junior then, Ben even at the Harrogate World Championships, and he did a great ride there. Just showed real character, and yeah, I started telling people then about him, saying, "Yeah, he's this kid's going to be good because he's." He's just got grit. And I think that's important to acknowledge across the Ardennes Classics. It isn't just about putting down numbers. In the mountain stages of the Tour de France, it's all about a power to weight ratio and all that. But the Ardennes is about having that. You've got to have character. You've got to be able to fight for position. You have to be, everybody's tired at the end of these races, but you have to believe and just keep fighting all the way to the line. And that's exactly what he did. He just kept coming back for more, especially obviously Amstel. He had a bad day of flesh after digging so deep at Amstel. But then obviously he came back for more in the age. And, uh, yeah, I think he's uh, he's obviously got a bright future and he's, he seems to be in the right team as well. I mean, similar to myself, that team's got a great history in in finding talents and really progressing them, helping them, giving them the right environment to build and improve. And he seems to uh, be taking advantage of that situation and that freedom as well, being able to, uh, to, to race, race openly tactically. Well, chaps, we're talking on, as we've already mentioned, the first day of the... Tour de Romandie, Tour de Romandie. We're also talking on the day when Joe Biden has announced that he's going to run for US, the US presidency again. Well, the cyclists of the World Tour Peloton, not only the World Tour Peloton, all professional cyclists, they have a new president, don't they, Lionel, of sorts? Um, they do. New president of the CPA. They do. He's been in the, the, the cycling equivalent of the White House, whatever that would be, for just over a month. <laughs> it's, it's Adam Hansen. Does this make Gianni Bugno Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I wouldn't like to comment. Uh, Jenny Bunio, the outgoing president. Uh, Adam Hansen uh, ran for president, more or less unopposed in the end. Uh, the people who had their eye on the presidency kind of stepped aside. And yeah, Adam Hansen, former World Tour Pro, of course, long career with the likes of High Road and Lotto Sudal, uh, very respected domestique, had that incredible streak of consecutive grand tours, didn't he? So, you know, been around the peloton a long time. And well, I spoke to him last week and we'll put the full conversation out for friends of the podcast because it was really interesting. First of all, getting a bit of insight into what the CPA actually is. It's basically a union, a rider union. It represents all of the professional riders, but I, I dug into the detail of exactly what it does. And well, people who follow Adam Hansen on social media, Twitter particularly, will see that he's been very active already, proactive uh, he's been to several races, Milan San Remo, just a couple of days after he uh, was elected as president. He's been on and off team buses at both men's and women's races, just introducing himself. Um, most of the riders will obviously know him, but I think he wanted to just uh, demonstrate that he could hop onto the bus, say a few things quite succinctly, and then hop off the bus again and uh, leave the impression that he is someone that is uh, approachable with uh, any uh, gripes and grumbles from the peloton. He is, uh, as I say, he's hit the ground running in the sense that he has already um, canvassed the riders for the things that uh, they think are most important in their workplace. But uh, the full interview is quite far reaching. Uh, but here is a little taste of Adam Hansen, the new CPA president. So, Adam, you have been the president, I think now, well, you're in the US, so you're a bit behind me. So I think for a month and a day, you were, you were elected on the eve of Milan San Remo, the first ever uh, electronic vote, which I think was one of the contentious things last time round, wasn't it? The, the sense that, the, that it was all being done on, uh, I, I guess, postal ballots. But that was one of the things that led to this splinter organization, the Riders' Union being founded in the first place in 2020. So, I mean, I don't want to presume, but what's your kind of first priority? Is it to uh, kind of show the riders that the CPA is there to represent all of the interests of the riders and, and bring bring back together some kind of unified and um, collective idea of what it is to be a professional cyclist? Yeah, 100%. Um, the CPA always represents everyone. Um, and, and to, to give an example of that, like when we work on the joint agreement, um, that is for every rider. That is really for every rider. With the weather protocol, um, if the riders don't like us or not, that's for every rider. It's for, even for the women's, it's, um, before they became members of the CPA, it's really for every rider. So you're, you're right. My, my first goal is to show them working, show the CPA's working, show we're listening to the riders, gain the trust, um, the ones that have lost faith in us, and collectively together we will be a, a stronger a force so yeah it's um to fix those things it does feel like you've hit the ground running there's been a bit of momentum in this first month i've been at a couple of races and i've seen you diving in and out of team buses trying to talk to the riders even just for a few minutes but to just show your face you were at paris-roubaix you were at milan san remo i think before that is that right yeah so uh, as your first priority just being to get in front of the riders remind those of them that already know you this is me i'm now the president of the cpa 
but also just to uh, give a human face to this organization? Yeah, so uh, I actually went to also UAE tour beforehand just to, I wanted to speak to the riders first and listen to what they wanted. Um, and I was speaking to some riders, I think for, I think it went from almost three and a half hours. Um, it was actually a long talk. And then how, how I actually presented myself was like, I went to the, the team hotel when they're having dinner and I said, hey, there's a meeting afterwards, come. There's no topic. I just want you to come and attack me with all your questions and um, I know there's some hatreds towards the CPA and go for it. Oh, I'm here to answer everything, explain everything. And it was good, actually. I had some guys answered, and I, you know, I, I, I had um, some tough questions, but I was able to answer them and they were, all, they, were, they were surprised with the answers because, you know, there's, there's, I don't, I don't want to call names out to anyone, but there's, there's some people that have said some, let's say, not, not uh, true information about the CPA. Um, but that's okay. Um, I just got to uh, prove them wrong in the long run. And um, but that that started up, and then um, yeah, Milan San Remo was at Pay Basketball, so uh, the women's Paris Bay, the men's Paris Bay, um, and it was it was. There's a few things I wanted to do. First, show my face, show that CPA's around. Two, show them what I'm working on, um, based on what I heard from the UA two of the writers, because um, I asked the main topics. Um, and three, I wanted to show the teams I can go into a bus, speak for a minute and hop out because I want them to know in the future, uh, Adam's here, it's okay. He's only one minute on the bus. It's not like, ah, before a race, you know, he comes in, he talks 10 minutes. Like I really wanted to get in there and get out as fast as possible. Say my line, here's my contact information. Guys, contact me on this, what's up, whatever. I'll do it. Um, and just to show that, you know, um, I'm here to, you know, and to say to them, like really say to them, I work for you. I really work for you. And I can only do what you tell me. So if you don't tell me anything, I'm going to work on these topics. And that's that's what I'm going to do. Well, one of the things that Adam Hansen's been doing is posting some of the results of his rider survey on Twitter. One of the most eye-catching is the idea of having yellow and red cards for riders who uh, ride dangerously or cause incidents in the peloton. That created quite a lot of debate. But I think what he is trying to do is... Uh, demonstrate to the riders that it's their union, it's their sport, and that if they want to have a voice, they need to speak up and have a voice. Dan, I don't know what you thought during your long career of the role of the CPA, uh, whether you ever um, made representations to the CPA, spoke to anyone involved, what you thought of the rider union as a whole. Yeah, I think it's a great move what Adam's doing because it's uh, obviously he's relatable. He's the guys know him already, or, or many of them do, and he actually speaks English, which, which is the way the peloton is going. I mean, Gianni, I don't think I ever met him in 14 years in the peloton and rarely had came into contact with anybody from the CPA. You either had to go looking for them or contact them by email or whatever. And it was actually an effort where was, he's, he's coming across as very approachable and he's actually in touch with the current peloton. I mean, that's Gianni Bonio retired 10 years before I even turned pro. And I know how much... The peloton changed during just my career so how much it must have changed 20 years down 15 Gianni Bruno no 1998 I actually retired in... and I turned pro in 2008 so 25 years yeah, yeah oh, 25 okay, years from yeah, now sorry, he, uh, yeah, yeah. he retired and yeah that's a huge amount of time and obviously it, it's the majority of the, I mean even teams like La France de Jour now it's there's there's English within the team and the fact that we've now got the English speaking president that the majority can 
actually communicate with and he's open to communication he's open to the new ideas from the peloton and it's a it's a massive step forward but i will say obviously he's got a very difficult job because there are so many different opinions within the peloton There's, if you ask the same question to all the guys it's a you're always going to come back with 50 different answers so it's a it's a very difficult job trying to balance all the yeah all, all the different requests and opinions across the what's a hu hugely diverse and international sport now but uh yeah he's making a great start and but he's also obviously very fresh and motivated at the moment so it's gonna be interesting to see how much it's one thing putting twitter polls out there it's another thing getting those those ideas passed as official rules i mean logically of course dan i agree with you but there are those of us who sort of facetiously would inwardly decry the rampant anglicization of English. I yearn for the days, not that long ago, when there was an occasion about 10 years ago where there was a pre-direct sportive briefing before a French race, the uh, GP Cholet, I think, in the Loire in France, and Marc Madia stormed out because um, they started to conduct the... the the meeting in English and he said this is a French race this has to be conducted in French anyway it's just the way of the world isn't it as I say rampant anglicisation well, he's obviously signing more English riders now or Australians at least and uh, yeah obviously Jake Stewart as well he's there as well he? so it's uh, he's, he's, he's seen the way of the world yeah, one of the things that Adam Hansen was talking about was that uh, it is the riders' union and he will take uh, to the various different stakeholders the views of the riders. And, of course, there's the, you know, the race organisers, the teams. Um, yeah, you know, the, there's a, the riders often find themselves caught in the middle of uh, all of the various sort of power grabs in professional cycling. But he did also say that the most uh, pressing matter for the riders that he has polled so far is the issue of safety and uh he's coming up with some some fairly radical proposals some ideas that uh, just to put them on the the table for discussion one of them being indicating to riders much much sooner before a traffic island uh, we often see don't we the, the 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 steward with the flag will be right in front of the traffic island you know, he's been polling the riders would it be better to have that i don't know 50 meters you know 20 five meters whatever in front of the obstacle so that riders have more reaction time you know the the movement of motors bikes the movement of cars around the peloton as well is something that he's been asking the riders for because of course it's the riders who know intimately how they and everything else connected to the race moves and one of the things that he's uh, asked about should there be you know more obvious and understandable sanctions for riders who uh, cause incidents or ride dangerously this yellow and red card system anyone who doesn't like football will be absolutely horrified at the footballification of professional cycling um, anglicization and football footballification what's worse i know which i <laughs> which i would say I mean, is worse. it's a tricky one as well isn't it because one I think you see a lot less respect among the riders now. You do see a lot less times when riders are pointing obstacles out and looking after each other. And that that's, yes, okay, the roads are becoming more cluttered with street furniture. And, it, and at some points, you never have your hands on the handlebars. You're pointing it if you have to point out every single obstacle. But at the same time, that's also extra cost for the organization of races that's already struggling. So perhaps it's more to do with the, the UCI selecting avoiding towns and cities which yeah obviously it's inevitable at some point but 
so often when you do these races and you take it straight through the center of a city with roundabout traffic islands all over the place is there not a better way through these towns and picking roads that are less plotted and then obviously the red card yellow system yeah it's it's all great in theory i think they're all great ideas but it's the implica- implication implementation of these things that's going to be the challenge because that involves having a race jury who has to watch all the images and is it during the race this happens is it after i think as you say it's you play you find yourself playing devil's advocate here a little bit because they're all they're quite obvious ideas and you'd think that it'd be spotted beforehand that you can that these things would have been put into place but it's going to be interesting to see the the interest of the uci to actually start doing some of these because at the same time now there's a list of uci rules for requirements of stage finishes etc that are very rarely adhered to so it's and they don't enforce their own rules on those finishes and stuff it's it's they kind of send a list to the race organizer and say here this is what you're supposed to do but nobody's actually checking they that they do it so how do you enforce these rules as well do do you feel in your time as a rider dan that the the riders were kind of voiceless in a lot of situations you know the 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 idea that the riders just sort of strap on a helmet and climb on the bike and the conditions are the conditions and and really they don't really have a great deal of representation when it comes to the types of races uh, and the types of working conditions that are expected of them yeah no doubt i mean it's uh you see the Obviously, finally, they, there was a the weather protocol passed, but how long does it take for these rules to actually be brought into brought into reality? And there's also, yeah, it, it's the, the issue of safety has been. I think riders now have a much greater voice because of social media because it's easier to get your voice across. Whereas beforehand, there's obviously the same arguments have been have been said for for decades, but they weren't as easily accessible to the public and. Yeah, often, as I say, more often than not, I mean, I raise an issue about sitting on the cross tube of the bars, of the bikes, which now, obviously, it's been it's a position that's been banned for descending. But it almost split the peloton 50-50 as far as some guys are saying, what are you talking about? It's it's incredibly safe to ride like that when you can't hold your brakes and you're not holding your handlebars and you're not touching your saddle. And the other 15% were saying, yeah, it should be banned, etc. And you've always got this opinion across the peloton of what's safe, what isn't, what the rule should be, what it shouldn't be. And unfortunately, that's why union hasn't worked until now, because it's very difficult. Everybody always seems to have their own agenda, and it's difficult to get everybody on the same page more often than not. Well, I think that is partly how Adam sees his role as the CPA president. But uh, as I say, it, it was an interesting conversation. We covered lots of ground and that will be on the Friends of the Podcast feed very soon, certainly before the end of the week and before, well, we launch ourselves into Giro d'Italia fever. Yes, Lionel, we'll be back next week, won't we, with our full Giro preview, after which we're, well, May the 6th, we're into our Giro coverage. We'll be, I'll be on the ground, Brian Nygaard, but Lionel, you'll be appearing in the podcast every day, pretty much as well, I think, every day. Dan, we're going to thank you for your time. We'll be hearing from you, no doubt, in the next few weeks at some point as well. Um, Lionel, we are going to, well, finally, today, um, we're going to, 
we'll end on a, a very sad note, very somber note for those of us, you and I, and uh, there'll be listeners as well, and perhaps also Dan, who came into contact with a gentleman called Chris Baldwin, who was the Astana press officer for a couple of years. He was also the press officer for other teams. Um, and, well, Lionel, he was very charismatic, funny, and incredibly intimidatingly intelligent gentleman who we learned last week died suddenly at the age of 52 i think i'm right in saying a real shock for both of us really we'd had regular contact with chris even over the last two or three years when he was no longer working in professional cycling he was living in amsterdam but um as i said was always a very wry and very learned insightful commentator on all sorts of issues from what was going on in cycling to geopolitics and yeah we're devastated to to learn of his passing and we're going to hear Chris's voice just to play us out today aren't we Lionel? We are yes uh, Chris's route into cycling actually has a connection back to Super Sapiens in a way because his first job as a press officer was with Team Type 1 the team founded by Phil Sutherland the Super Sapiens founder of course and then when they became the Novo Nordisk team and went a fully diabetic roster um Chris wanted to kind of step up in the world of professional cycling. He was looking for another gig. And, well, he ended up as the press officer for the Astana team. Quite an unlikely fit, you would have thought. An American working as the press officer for a Kazakh team. Um, but he had studied Russian in college, uh, incredibly well-traveled, incredibly curious person, had an anecdote I think I wrote this in the, the, the 1101 Cappuccino tribute I did last week, but he had an anecdote for pretty much every occasion. And some of them seemed so outlandish. It was almost as if he was kind of running through a sort of stand-up comedy routine. I mean, I never quite knew whether some of the things he was telling me were true or not, but uh, he was incredibly engaging. And uh, back in the early days of the Cycling Podcast, he was a semi-regular voice on the podcast wasn't he because he was kind of a window into the Astana team which at the time was quite opaque for us as a English-speaking journalist of course 2014 was when Vincenzo Nibali won the Tour de France and so Chris was very busy you know fielding media requests and what have you uh, but Richard and I spoke to him a number of times and what you're going to hear now is Chris explaining his kind of circuitous route into uh, the job at the Astana team uh, this was recorded at the Giro d'Italia Grande Patenza in Ireland in 2014 um, but we would like to pass on our condolences to uh, Chris's friends and family um, a big loss to uh, the world of cycling even though he wasn't working in it um, in recent years, um, somebody that we all got to know and like very much on the circuit. Uh, I got a phone call, totally unexpected, from a guy named Vasily Davidenko, who's a Russian-American, who was running a team called Team Type 1 at the time. And he said, hey, Chris, I got a budget for a team. We're going to race in Europe. We're at a pro-continental level. Uh, we need a press officer. Are you interested? And I thought back, and I'd known Vasily for about 10 years, because I, in America... When I had lived there, I'd always gone to these bike races, and I'd done work for Cycling News. I covered the uh, Criterium Champions one year, and I, you know I wasn't a terribly good cycling journalist because I, I would write way too many words for. A, I, I don't a, believe that. I don't believe that. It's, you can't be wordy. It's that's the one, if, if anything, the one thing writers taught me is that you really have to distill it into one sentence per paragraph, and you really have to cut it down like that. But he, anyway, Vasily called me up and said, "I need somebody to do this, just press officer thing," and I had no idea about PR or internet or anything. But it was a lot like that same 
move that I made from Kyrgyzstan to Moscow when I just started working in a newspaper. Like, yeah, I'll do it. And so I did it for two years with Vasily at uh, uh, Team Type 1, and that was a really interesting project because they had these six or seven uh, kids with diabetes who were racing and all these other guys. And in our first year, we didn't have so much success. We, we won the Tour of Turkey, but in our second year, we did really well at the Tour of Austria, and we did really well with... Uh, uh, races all around the world and it was a really good project but what happened was the sponsor changed for uh, Team Type 1 and they were taken from their old sponsor to a new sponsor Novo Nordisk and one of the stipulations in the change was that they were going to go to be an all diabetic squad and that changes the dynamic of the kinds of invitations that they're going to get to the races that they're going to go to uh, at least in the first few years uh, and I kind of thought well wait a minute I I like the team, I like the project, these are good friends of mine, I really want to do this, but why don't I try and seek my way up? And so what happened was, at the Tour of Turkey that year, uh, in the second stage, the two, two riders went in a breakaway. One of them was Laszlo Bedrogi, our guy, and the other guy was Alexander Vinokurov, who's the leader of this Astana team. And so what happened, the way I got this job was, those two guys went in the break, Bedrogi took the points for the beauty jersey that you get in the Tour of Turkey and Vinokurov got the most aggressive rider jersey and you know in the, in the Tour of Turkey there's like seven or eight podium presentations every day and so what happened was I went up and I stood next to Vinokurov and Vinokurov's a, a small diminutive man but he's nonetheless terrifying most people are just absolutely petrified of the guy because he, you know he looks like a, he could just sort of like a chocolate bunny yeah um, uh, and I just started talking to him I said hey you know Bedrogi broke his leg too because this was in uh, Alexander Vinokurov was building his leg back up, and he looked at me. First of all, he looked at me like, "What strange man is speaking Russian to me? How is this possible?" And then he relaxed a little bit, and I said, "Yeah, you know, he broke his leg, but Drogi broke his leg, but he didn't get the chance to recover, and so he he's had struggled trying to come back in." But hey, you're looking good, you know. And he's like, "Oh yeah," and then he he started telling me, "They put they put a spike in my leg this long. I got French guys doing it. It's awesome. I'm gonna you know, I'm, I'm training this year. I'm gonna uh, get back in and try and race again." And I said, oh, cool. He said, oh, cool. What's your name? And I'm Chris. Oh, see you later, Chris. And then that night, Vasily comes up to me at the restaurant. He's like, oh, I got really good news for you, Chris. What is it, Vasily? Astana wants to hire you. On the basis of that one conversation? Um, no, they, they, yeah, more or less. Because they, they're like, oh, God, here's a guy who speaks Russian. Oh, my God, he speaks Russian. He can do this job. And what happened, as I, it turns out, Vasily Davidenko, is uh, a really good friend of Alexander Schaefer, who is uh, the director sportif of this team. And because they're um, uh, such good friends, Vasily was able to vouch for me in more or less a second and uh, uh, say, oh yeah, Chris is a good guy, he knows what he's doing. Also, he wants to leave us because he kind of wants a promotion. Uh, and that's how it worked out. Now you're here. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.